Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The U.N. focuses on climate change. China's president, Hu Jintao, steps up to the plate and gets international applause. But not all are impressed. I frankly am a little bit surprised by all of the hype. What we've gotten from President Hu Jintao is is pretty much what the president has been saying for the past uh, three or four years, frankly speaking. And we talk to the makers of Survivable, a new product to keep you safe from the ravages of global warming. Plus a wildlife icon, an aquarium's ambassador to the world. Hoover was a very famous seal here in Boston. He was on TV a couple times, and he was famous for talking. Hoover the talking seal and how his talent lives on. We have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The U.N. has been talking for years about what its scientists call the dire threat from global climate change. But for the first time, the leaders of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, China and the United States, stood on the same platform to offer their solutions. The occasion was a climate summit at the United Nations. Mohammed Nasheed, the president of one of the world's smallest nations, the low-lying Maldive Islands, set the tone of the summit as he called on the world's most polluting nations to take action. Otherwise, according to scientists, ice will melt, tropical storms, floods and droughts will increase, and sea level will rise sharply. If things go business as usual, we will not live, we will die. Our country will not exist. We cannot come out from Copenhagen as failures. We cannot make Copenhagen a pact for suicide. Speaking for the developed nations, President Barack Obama added his own sense of urgency. The threat from climate change is serious, it is urgent, and it is growing. Our generation's response to this challenge will be judged by history. For if we fail to meet it boldly, swiftly, and together, we risk consigning future generations to an irreversible catastrophe. China has now passed the United States as the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Together, the two create 40 percent of the global total. Mr. Secretary General, dear colleagues. Speaking through an interpreter, Chinese President Hu Jintao emphasized that his country was already cleaning up its act by improving energy efficiency, increasing carbon-free energy production, and soaking up global warming gases with forest growth. While President Hu did not pledge to put caps on his country's overall greenhouse gas emissions, he did commit to reducing carbon intensity by, quote, a notable margin. The speech prompted some, including U.N. climate chief Ivo de Boer, to, quote, commend China for its leadership. But Elizabeth economy was not so impressed. She is an author on environmental issues in China and the director for the Asian program at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she says China's commitments did not go far enough. Well, I, I think that President Hu Jintao has brought a positive attitude <laughs> toward uh, being a responsible 
player, a responsible partner to address the challenge of global climate change. I don't think that he's brought to the table what the Europeans uh, or uh, the Japanese or the United States even uh, really wants to see coming out of China, which is namely a pledge or a promise uh, to cap emissions, even at some point uh, further down the line. Instead, what we've gotten from President Hu Jintao is pretty much what he said before, which is that he will promise to curb the growth of China's uh, carbon dioxide emissions. He will continue with an afforestation program, uh, and he will uh, pursue the development of renewable energy within the country's energy mix to try to attain a goal of about 15 percent by 2020. So what do you make of this report from the International Energy Agency that says, in essence, that China will move towards a forefront of combating climate change by 2020 if it meets its own uh, stated targets uh, that, that Hu Jintao presented on greenhouse gas emissions? I guess I'm puzzled by that because, uh, again, the president, Hu Jintao, has not made any commitments in terms of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The only pledge that he's made uh, is to get you know, the role of renewables uh, within the country's energy mix up to 15 percent by 2020. And I don't think that will put them at the forefront of combating climate change. I think a uh, more or less direct quote from uh, the IEA's uh, chief economist says, uh, quote, if China reaches its targets, and in the past it has reached most of its targets of this kind, its emissions growth will have declined so much by 2020 that it will be the country that has achieved the largest emissions reductions. (laughs) Well... I think the only other possible explanation is that uh, in many instances, the International Energy Agency, the United Nations have been very much cheerleaders for China, uh, encouraging them, uh, even as they take the smallest steps toward uh, meeting their environmental or climate goals. Uh, Again, since they haven't made any commitments, it is very difficult to understand exactly what the chief economist is talking about. So let's look at uh, what he had in the speech. Uh, President Hu said, we'll develop renewable energy and nuclear energy. We will endeavor to increase the share of non-fossil fuels and primary energy consumption to around 15 percent by 2020. How does that compare to what the United States and Europe are doing? Again, I think this is important, what President Hu Jintao is saying, to have 15 percent of their energy come from uh, nuclear and renewable. But if the Chinese economy continues to grow, at a rate of, you know, 8% or 7% per year. Back in 2000, people were predicting that they would double their energy consumption by 2020. Instead, China doubled its energy consumption by 2007. So just the the sheer rate at which this enormous economy is growing uh, means that even if you have 15% of uh, your energy mix coming from renewables, if you're doubling the size of of your economy and your energy along with it, uh, you're really looking at an enormous increase in the use of fossil fuels. Let's talk about the use of fossil fuels. There's a saying that every week China builds another coal-fired power plant. How accurate is that? I think it was true probably about two years ago. Every seven to ten days, uh, China was uh, putting online uh, a new coal-fired power plant. It may still be true. I think the important thing to realize is that these coal-fired power plants are more efficient uh, than the ones that they are replacing. And so that's a plus. But at the same time, you are seeing an overall increase in the amount of, of energy consumed, in the energy demand in the country. So let's circle around back now to Copenhagen. Coming into Copenhagen, 
a handicap for me how well the Chinese will do with what they put out on offer so far and how well the U.S. will do and what that might mean for climate politics going forward. You know, my sense is that uh, no country is going to get what it wants. We're unlikely to come to any real global agreement. Optimally, we would see within the U.S. Senate certainly a movement uh, suggesting that uh, Waxman-Markey or some variant thereof uh, has a very good chance of making it through. And President uh, Obama and his team can be confident that what they bring to Copenhagen, you know, is, is going to be something substantial. Uh, on the Chinese side, you know, optimally, they're going to move forward from what we've heard from President Hu Jintao and actually say, as they said in a study that came out in August, yes, let's set some voluntary targets first, and then let's put into place some binding targets. So some kind of time frame, I think, from the Chinese for actual reductions in emissions would be the optimal end result. Even if that number isn't, say, till 2030, that China says, well, we'll keep growing until 2030, that's when we'll finally start shrinking. I think even if they say uh, we're going to allow emissions to peak uh, around 2030 and then set firm targets for reduction, I think that gives the rest of the global community a much firmer place from which to, to push the Chinese and from which to negotiate. And I think that's precisely why the Chinese have not done it. <laughs> Elizabeth Economy is director of the Asian Program at the Council on Foreign Relations and is working on a new book about China. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. Amid all the gloomy global warming scenarios of rising seas and fierce storms, one company offers a way out. Not far from the United Nations building in New York, the company showed off a product advertised as the individual's way to guard against the ravages of climate change. It's called Survivaball. Each Survivaball contains all the tools you need to enjoy a safe and happy stay on our changing planet. We caught up with one of the developers of Survivaball, Mike Bonanno, for more on his intriguing product. With climate change, coming and bringing all kinds of disasters, there's got to be a way to save all these CEOs who are creating the problem. And survivable is the answer. It's a gated community for one, a survival suit six feet in diameter that can contain a single individual and sustain them even when everybody else is dead. Now, you've actually had a demonstration of the survivable. You've tried floating them out into the, the East River in New York? Absolutely. All week we've been using survivables in New York in the lead-up to uh, the big climate negotiations at the U.N. We had 21 of them that were planning to enter the East River and float up to the U.N. and basically sit in on the negotiations. But unfortunately, the police came right away and uh, turned us back. And Andy was arrested. Andy's your, your partner, and we should probably reveal at this point you're actually part of the prankster duo known as the Yes Men. Uh, yes. I guess I let the cat out of the bag, didn't <laughs> I? <laughs> What's the point of doing survivable? Well, you know, we want to highlight what is the primary problem that the civilization faces at the moment, which is climate change. And sometimes doing it with a little bit of humor goes to places that the serious and dire messages don't. And so, you know, it's funny. It attracts attention. And when people are in these survivable costumes, it's really hard for the police to figure out what to do about it because there's no place to really grab onto them. They don't really know where the person is inside the costume. So it's a, it's a great and strange and funny costume to get in for acts of civil disobedience. 
Have you had anyone take you up on this and say, I like this idea, where can I get one? Oh, yes. In fact, the first time we made them, it was because we were representing Halliburton at a catastrophic loss conference. And the uh, audience of insurance industry reps actually applauded, and several of them were interested in it. (laughs) So you've had that, and you'd think that'd be enough. But for this uh, week in New York, when the world's attention was focused on uh, climate change, you decided to print a newspaper that would be focused on the news about climate change. That's right. We worked with a bunch of other activist organizations, and we put together a fake New York Post. And the headline there is, We're Screwed, What You're Not Being Told. Official City Report Predicts Massive Climate Catastrophes, Public Health Disasters. And everything in this fake post is absolutely true. What we see is that papers like the Post don't give adequate coverage to climate change, and since they weren't doing it, we took matters into our own hands. Is it hard to find the funny in climate change? Well, you know, it it is incredibly depressing because it's incredibly scary. But, you know, it is easy to see the funny in a black humor sort of way because our approach to it is so absurd. You know, like having technical solutions to climate change when we actually know exactly what we need to do, and that is reduce emissions. Mike Bonanno is one half of the Yes Men. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Coming up, a new take on the green revolution for rice farmers in South Asia. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. At the G20 Economic Summit in Pittsburgh, President Obama challenged other world leaders to take a fresh look at the support their governments give to fossil fuels. I will work with my colleagues at the G20 to phase out fossil fuel subsidies so that we can better address our climate challenge. Recent reports from the International Energy Agency and other institutions point out the scale of those largely hidden subsidies and how they contribute to global warming. It's an area Steve Kretzmann's studied for decades at the Institute for Policy Studies and now with the advocacy group Oil Change International. So I asked Mr. Kretzmann what exactly these subsidies are. This is basically money that's given by governments to either subsidize the cost of production, thus lowering the cost of production for producers like oil and coal, or subsidize the cost of consumption, thus lowering the cost of consumption for consumers around the world, i.e. keeping the price of gas artificially low. So give us a sense of the the scale. How much money are we talking about? On an annual basis, globally, there are at least $250 billion in uh, global fossil fuel subsidies, and some people think that number is closer to $400 billion. And these are mostly what? In the form of uh, tax breaks or direct payments or what? Most of the subsidies are on the consumption side, keeping the price of gas low and the price of energy affordable for people in developing nations. Um, But there's also some very substantial subsidies on the production side, predominantly in the United States and Europe. In the U.S., there's a great study that came out last week that shows that we give at least $70 billion on an annual basis to the fossil fuel industry. And how does that level of subsidization compare to what we give to, say, uh, renewable energies, wind, solar, things like that? 
we still subsidize fossil fuels at a much higher rate than we do uh, true renewables. You know, solar, wind, efficiency, these things get about $12 billion on an annual basis um, as compared, again, to 70 for fossil fuels. So that's a really imbalanced energy market. A few years back, there was a study of climate change in particular, and it was noted by Nicholas Stern, who is the World Bank's chief economist, that climate change is the greatest market failure of all time, and that the subsidies, the fossil fuel subsidies, are the major reason for this market distortion. Well, the president's proposal got a pretty immediate response from uh, some oil-producing states. Here's what Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, had to say. I think it is important to determine what is a subsidy and what is a tax uh, incentive. Raising taxes on the fuels that we currently depend on would likely result in, in higher consumer prices and would, would only impact our ability to produce those fuels domestically in, instead of importing them. What do you make of that statement from Senator Murkowski? First of all, I'm not really sure why the industry would need additional incentive. This is one of the most profitable industries on the planet, and why they need to use tax dollars to additionally incentivize them doesn't really make any sense. Uh, and it's time to start using our public money to encourage the energy of the future, not the energy of the past. But um, it seems to me she does hit on a couple of key concerns here that are valid. There's the very real likelihood that this would result in increased prices for consumers. I think access to energy and access to the services that energy provides, transport, light, heat, etc., is very important and it's something that we want to absolutely guarantee and help to facilitate for all people. How that energy gets generated is not really something that most people are attached to. Most people don't really care that they're, you know, lighting their or heating their homes with uh, a coal-fired power plant as opposed to a centralized solar power plant. They don't care where it comes from, but they care how much it costs. And if you yank these subsidies out from under them, the, it's going to cost more, isn't it? Well, it depends. If you affect a transition time and at the same point you're subsidizing the cleaner energy production, um, maybe you end up actually with cheaper energy on the other end. I think everyone recognizes that it's in no one's interest to jack up the price and make you know energy or transport unaffordable to Americans or anyone else in the rest of the world. What we want to do is make sure this energy is actually produced in a clean way that is sustainable. And what about the notion that uh, we would uh, just encourage more import rather than domestic production of oil? The oil industry has every incentive to find more oil domestically because it's much cheaper to transported if you produce it domestically and bring it to market in the United States, which is the largest oil market in the world, that's going to give them much higher profit margins. And that's all the incentive they need. Give me a sense of, of why this matters for climate change. What, what kind of greenhouse gas emissions are really buried in these subsidies and these tax breaks? The greenhouse gas implications of this proposal to remove subsidies are actually quite profound. There was a study from OECD earlier this year which showed that for the $300 billion in subsidies that were identified in that study, if they were taken away, you would get a 10 to 12 percent reduction globally in greenhouse gases. Steve Kretzman is with the group Oil Change International. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me.
In the landlocked Southeast Asian country of Laos, rice is central to the diet. The average Laotian eats about 350 pounds of rice each year. That's over two thirds of their calorie intake. Since rice is so vital for the nation's food security, the Laotian government has worked hard to achieve self-sufficiency in the crop, and the efforts have been successful. In 2001, the country stopped importing rice from its neighbors—a great achievement for a small, underdeveloped nation. But as Elise Potaka finds out, rice farmers in Laos still face challenges ahead. In Phai Village, not far from Luang Prabang, the rice fields have been harvested and are being prepared for next season's crop. It's been a tough year for Phai's farmers, like Siang La. Last year, my rice production was 50 bags, but this year, it's only 25 bags. Siang La and other farmers say they lost their first crop to rodents and had to sow a second. But rodents are only one of the challenges facing Laos rice farmers in their efforts to maintain their rice yields. In 2005, the government adopted a new forestry strategy aimed at increasing forest cover to 70% by 2020. The government says it wants to more sustainably manage the country's forests. Now, shifting cultivation and slash and burn agriculture are being phased out. Bandasok Vangputon from the National Agriculture and Forestry Research Institute, or NAFRI, says this has had a big impact. Now land is allocated to individual farmers. Households receive around 1.5 hectares on which to cultivate crops, but in many cases there has been a loss of soil fertility because farmers can no longer rotate their crops. They have to plant rice in the same field every year. Bantasok Vangbuton and his institute have been working with the International Rice Research Institute, or IRI, to try and help farmers maintain their yields. Researchers, alongside villagers and local governments, are experimenting with rice varieties to see which ones grow best under these new conditions. Dr. Ben Sampson is based in Luang Prabang with IRI. My predecessors have worked on. Identifying cultivars which will grow under continuous rice cultivation, uh, cultivars which will be able to grow in such a way that they grow fast and are harvested early, so that it allows for another crop to grow. Most of the plants used in the experiments are local Laos cultivars, that is, seed varieties selected by Laotians over many years for their strength, flavor, and other beneficial features. The experiments start with a choice of around 100 varieties, but through interaction with farmers, this is narrowed down. Bandasak Vongpaton says the rice with the highest yield is not always people's favorite. Some varieties some varieties are high yield, but the grain is small. For example, for the cooking, it's not good, not soft. We have the farmer field days. We invite the farmers to look at the varieties. We try five or six varieties. What is the best one for you or the village? And they select and choose. While Iri offers farmers all different types of rice, most people here want glutinous or sticky rice varieties. The Lao style of eating uses sticky balls of rice and no chopsticks. And Dr. Ben Sampson says farmers can at first be reluctant to grow non-glutinous rice. 
they come and evaluate the material and they say, oh, this looks good. It has the right grain size. It looks what nice. But then they ask us, is it glutinous? Is it non-glutinous? <laughs> if it's non-glutinous, then I don't like it. <laughs> I don't want it. On the other hand, we, we've also come across farmers who have big families. This one farmer I remember in Udomsai province, he told us that since he started growing non-glutinous rice, he's been able to cut down the number of months where they don't have rice in the household. He's been able to uh, plant rubber on his upland uh, area. To try and cater to the demands for glutinous rice, researchers from Erie are now collecting louse rice varieties for the International Rice Gene Bank at the Erie headquarters in the Philippines. Laos is now the second biggest contributor to the gene bank and there are plans to develop a specific breeding program for sticky rice varieties. <laughs> Back in Fire Village, villagers are called into the meeting hall over an ancient-looking sound system. They've come to discuss the outcomes from their latest work with Erie. Generally, the higher yields are being seen in the lowland fields, and this means that farmers can now use any remaining upland or sloping areas for crops to sell. My joy is the village head. Ten years ago, we only grew rice and rice products, but now we grow cash crops like sesame, corn, and a local type of maize. We also grow banana and sugarcane, and any leftover space in the paddy fields can be used as household gardens. For Laos subsistence farmers, being able to generate cash is a big change. On the one hand, it offers them the chance to buy necessities and to pay for a better standard of health care and education. But Dr Sampson says it could also lead to the use of chemical pesticides and fertilisers. Here in Fire Village, they're experimenting with natural fertilisers like green manure to try and improve their soils. Researchers hope that this, along with education programs, will discourage the abuse of chemicals as Laos farmers work to maintain their yields. In Luang Prabang, I'm Elise Portaka for Living on Earth. As emerging agricultural economies in countries like Laos become increasingly reliant on chemicals, they are beginning to face many of the same risks as those in the industrialized world. But figuring out those risks can be confusing and difficult. Living on Earth regularly reports on the suspected dangers of particular compounds, but it's hard to know how fearful to be about the thousands of untested and poorly understood substances. Maybe we need some green intelligence. The purpose of the book is really to underscore the, uh, the absence of understanding about what's worth worrying about. That's John Wargo, Yale professor of environmental policy and risk analysis, who's written the book Green Intelligence for the general public. His aim is to provide a comprehensive guide to both the health dangers as well as the political challenges of addressing those dangers. Well, most people don't understand what they're exposed to and uh, where it comes from. And uh, it arises from a, a number of different reasons. The failure to produce and disseminate knowledge, the uh, existence of trade secrecy on the part of the private sector, and uh, also classified information on the part of the government, but also the absence of transparency of knowledge that groups like EPA have, but do not make accessible to the general public. You say that trade secrecy really jeopardizes our safety. How does that work? Well, I think trade secrecy is very similar to classified information in that the primary purpose is to protect competitive advantage. But it has the effect of 
keeping critical information from consumers about product ingredients. Uh, a good example would be a plastic water bottle. And they're labeled on the bottom with a re- recycling code of number seven. But the number seven also includes many other different kinds of plastics, so it gives the consumer no understanding of of whether or not the polycarbonate contains a chemical known as bisphenol A. So it's difficult then for individuals to think about how they would avoid chemicals in in, uh, everyday consumer products. Now, the EPA is supposed to be protecting both the environment and human health, but you assert in your book that it's failing in its mission. Oh, I think it has. I think EPA has done a good job when it has targeted emitters of smokestack or uh, pipe pollution into uh, surface waters. But uh, where they have really fallen down has been in the management of chemicals that are components of consumer products or chemicals that are waste products. For example, there are now 80,000 chemicals in international commerce. Fewer than 10% of these have been tested to understand their behavior once released to the environment or what kinds of effects they might cause on human health, so that perhaps only 2 or 3% of those 80 to 100,000 chemicals have been tested uh, fully for the range of toxic effects that are now required by law. We're in a position where we're playing catch-up on what the effects of these chemicals are singly, but also in combinations on human health. How much trouble are we in as a society, as a planet, from toxic exposure to chemicals? How serious is this problem? Well, my opinion is that it's very serious, and I'm not happy about the fact that my children are walking around with this body burden of synthetic chemical substances. And I think that there is growing evidence that some of the health effects that we see, including the rise of respiratory illness, has raised the alarm for me. And the real purpose of the book is to explore the underlying factors that led to the problem of overexposure and and underattention. So someone listening to us would say, yeah, 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 I heard all this. In fact, my car pollutes, the, the, the smokestack down the street pollutes, um, the stuff I buy at the grocery store comes with pesticides. I mean, what's a human being to do? Well, I think that there are a number of uh, things that an individual or a family could do. They could adjust their behavior by really changing the way that they think about chemicals in their environment. For example, there are simple things you could do to uh, ensure that you have higher air quality indoors. It's very important to uh, carefully understand what is being sprayed in in an indoor environment. Research that I've done has demonstrated often that chemical concentrations are higher in indoor environments and exposures are higher when an indoor environment is sprayed and then occupied. So be very, very careful and cautious about pesticide use indoors. I recently purchased a flea powder, for example. There was a plastic bottle, and on the surface of the plastic bottle was a plastic wrapping. And the plastic wrapping claimed that the product was safe for humans and safe for animals. Well, I took the plastic wrapping off and uh, looked beneath it, and the EPA-required pesticide label stated that it was hazardous to humans and potentially hazardous to pets unless the uh, requirements on the label were met very strictly for what the concentration ought to be and and how to avoid uh, touching the skin with the product. And this, uh, I think, leads to exposures. Now, someone listening to us talk might decide that, well, Professor Wargo is just plain anti-chemical. How true is that? Not at all. Chemicals are necessary for life. Uh, We're all made of chemicals. Uh, There are are chemicals that are essential nutrients, but there are also chemicals that uh, behave in ways that threaten human health. 
And my argument in the book is basically that we need a, a better way to be able to distinguish between the chemicals necessary for healthy life and those that threaten it. John Wargo's book is called Green Intelligence, Creating Environments that Protect Human Health. Thank you so much for taking this time. Oh, thank you very much, Steve, for your interest. Just ahead, the amazing tale of a talking seal. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, a sad phenomenon in the Pacific Northwest. But first, this note on emerging science from Lisa Song. As climate change thaws the Arctic, it's more important than ever to keep an eye on polar bears. Scientists are now turning to Inuit expertise to monitor bear populations. For Inuit hunters, a single paw print can reveal a polar bear's sex, age, and size. The expert trackers will help researchers study polar bear movements, and the accuracy of those skills will be tested by Canadian scientists. At the same time, scientists will build fences around pieces of meat used as bait. As polar bears dine on the meat, bits of fur will get trapped on the fence, and biologists can use DNA markers from the hair to identify individual bears. Bear droppings will also be collected to study for signs of disease. Currently, researchers follow bears in helicopters and inject them with tranquilizers before tagging the animals for study. The new system is cheaper and more humane. It also helps economic development. The Inuit hunters will work from cabins in the far north, close to Baffin Island. When not being used for research, the cabins can be rented by ecotourists. Scientists hope that this combination of traditional skills and DNA technology will be used to create a map of polar bear behavior and migration, a census of the great carnivores in a world of warming ice. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Lisa Song. Fall is upon us, and for the Rocky Mountain West, that means the beautiful gold colors of the aspens. But increasingly, the aspens are dying. Jim Worrell is a U.S. Forest Service plant pathologist studying what's called sudden aspen decline with the fitting acronym SAD. And Mr. Worrell, this really is a sad phenomenon, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, a lot of people are very concerned about it, and uh, we certainly are, too. Well, give me a sense of the scale. How big an area is being affected here? It now occupies about 17% of the aspen cover type or the aspen forest type within Colorado. It extends up into southern Wyoming. And uh, in northern Arizona and southern Utah, there's uh, very similar damage that started a little bit earlier. What's going on? Why is this happening? It's, it's a complex cause. The main inciting factor that we believe is responsible is the major extreme drought that we had earlier in the decade. It was uh, very dry during that time. And most importantly, it was extremely hot, record-breaking temperatures during that period. 
So it's a little bit of a delayed effect from the drought. When you talk about uh, drought being a factor here, one of the things that pops into my mind is the projections about the increased likelihood of drought in uh, the West. How does climate change relate to this? We expect that that will lead to a recurrence and probably a worsening of sudden aspen decline. There have also been projections of where aspen is expected to be lost in the early stages of climate change during this century. And it's been shown that those are areas where we are losing aspen as a result of sudden aspen decline. So it's not too big a stretch to suggest that sudden aspen decline is the early effects of climate change. As I understand it, uh, aspen stands, they're really kind of the same tree, all connected under the soil, right? That's right. Uh, Aspen is a clonal plant. Most of the regeneration, most of the stems that you see in an aspen stand arose as sprouts or suckers from the roots of uh, a previous aspen tree. And uh, that's an important factor in understanding how aspen regenerates, typically. One of the major problems with the sudden aspen decline is that although the overstories are dying, the roots don't seem to be producing suckers to the extent you would hope and that they normally would be if there was a disturbance like a fire or cutting. So there is concern that some of these aspen stands may not replace themselves. So if they don't replace themselves, will these areas be replaced by by other trees? And then isn't that just kind of uh, the natural succession of of the forest? Yes, I guess that that is a successional process, but it means more or less very long-term, semi-permanent loss of aspen on a lot of these sites, which a lot of people don't want to see. So what can you do about this? Well, one thing we can do, we could take action to uh, disturb them in a way that aspen responds to disturbance by producing a lot of uh, uh, sprouts, uh, a new stand, and give them the best chance they have of regenerating before they completely lose all their energy and die out. But uh, another thing in the long term is to encourage age diversity in the forest, especially the aspen forest, because we know that young stands that have been, say, uh, where there have been cuts or fires 20, 30, 40 years ago, those young stands that have uh, sprouted up to replace the uh, old stands have basically not been affected by sudden aspen decline. Fire, always a big concern in the West. Uh, Is this going to add to the potential for fires, having those dead standing trees? In the short term, that's not likely because uh, aspen forests are not very flammable. They hold a lot of moisture, and when a fire comes up to an aspen forest, it generally uh, slows down or stops. Hmm. So even after the overstories are dead for quite a while, that feature will be retained. But in the long term, as these uh, stands convert to other forest types, we have uh, conifers or sagebrush, for instance, We won't have those aspen stands to uh, stop fires as they're going through the forest. And uh, so that that could be, over the very long term, a a factor to lead to increased fire spread. Mr. Worrell, I'm guessing you're you're a woodsman. You like to get out there and enjoy these forests. How has this affected uh, the way you are able to relate to, to aspen forests and enjoy especially the fall season? 
Well, I have to tell you, it's really been great for me because I've been in Aspen Forest a lot more now as a result of this. <laughs> this gives you an excuse to get out there more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of conifer forests, and the Aspen Forests are, to me, they're much more beautiful and pleasant to uh, work in. <laughs> but uh, it's got to be uh, kind of a bummer to be out among the dying stands. That's true. It is kind of sad from that point of view, uh, no pun intended. Jim Worrell, a uh, plant pathologist with the U.S. Forest Service, telling us about sudden aspen decline. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The landscape out in the west where the aspens are dying is stark, beautiful, and idiosyncratic. The particular and iconic features of American geography inspired the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. And that, in turn, inspired us to bring you occasional definitions from the book. Today, writer Donna Seaman describes chop hills. Chop hills. Nebraskans use the term chop hills as an alternative to sand hills. Both refer to a ridge of sand or sand dune in a region containing a series of hills either composed of or covered with sand. Nebraska's sand hills form a body of sandy landforms north and northwest of the confluence of the north and south forks of the Platte River and include the marshes the hills nourish. The famed sandhill cranes, wading birds averaging four feet in height with gray plumage, a trumpeting call, and elaborately choreographed mating rituals, frequent the chop hills as a way station on their annual migrations. Donna Seaman is a writer and editor based in Illinois. Her definition of chop hills comes from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney. program anytime on our website or get a download for your mp3 player the address is loe.org that's loe.org there you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories and we'd like to hear from you you can reach us at comments at loe.org once again comments at loe.org our postal address is 20 holland street somerville massachusetts 02144 And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. If we could talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree. We'd study elephants and eagles. Dr. Doolittle could talk to the animals because he learned their language. But it would be much easier if the animals would just learn to speak ours. And some have tried, as Living on Earth's Ike Sreeskandaraja found out at the New England Aquarium. Half a dozen kids pressed their faces against the tanks at the aquarium, laughing and pointing at the strange and beautiful procession of octopus and jellyfish and shark... And they're very impressed when I tell them that among all these exotic creatures, there once was one, a seal that could speak English. No. Whoa, that's so cool! No, it can't. It can't. Can it? That is the coolest thing ever. That is amazing. 
Wait, are you serious? What's his name? Hoover. His name was Hoover, and that's Cheryl Graham, a lead trainer at the New England Aquarium. Hoover was a very famous seal here in Boston. He was on TV a couple times and radio, and he was famous for talking. Yeah, that's right. This seal could talk. And how he obtained that human skill is a pretty good story. Before he was loved by all of New England, Hoover was all alone. He was an orphaned pup living on the coast of Maine when he was found. I believe the guy probably was a fisherman. His name was George Swallow. George, coming home one night, saw this hungry seal pup and tossed him a few pieces of bait. They disappeared, so George threw him a few more. Part of why he was named Hoover was that he ate huge volumes of fish, much like a Hoover vacuum cleaner. He would just suck all the fish down. (laughs) When George was all out of herring, he walked down the beach with Hoover scooting right behind. And as he got to his truck, George looked at the helpless pup, and he couldn't just leave him. So he drove Hoover home. And they had a little salt pond in their backyard. Where Hoover was very comfortable. George would spend hours back there just hanging out with Hoover and chatting. Literally. And if you kind of picture yourself in George Swallow's backyard talking to Hoover, you can see George saying, Hello there, Hoover. Hey there, Hoover. Hey, get out of there, Hoover. Hey, hey, Hoover. And they lived happily together. George looked out for Hoover, and Hoover looked up to George, becoming better and better at echoing him right on down to the main accent. But George knew he couldn't keep the seal forever. For one thing, Hoover was eating him out of house and herring. George said, he's going to be too big for me, and, you know, it's not practical. So George brought him here to the aquarium and said, okay, you guys are going to take good care of him. By the way, he talks. Hoover's talent went unrecognized at first. In fact, his handlers thought he had a neurological disorder. So he was just huffing and puffing, and he would tip his head back, and he would spin in a circle, and he would utter these vocalizations. And at first, the trainers thought that he was having seizures. Then they started hearing the word Hoover. Hey, 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 hello there. Get out of here. Hey, Hoover. He had a main accent. Yeah. <laughs> Always makes me cough. And in the aquarium's archives, there's an actual recording of Hoover. Excuse me, can I sneak in there with my microphone? Thank you. Back in 1985, a visitor reached his microphone into the seal tank. Hoover wasn't shy. He kept right on talking. Hoover died shortly after this tape was made. He received an obituary in the Boston Globe, the first and only seal to receive such an honor. They called him the Aquarium's Ambassador to the World. Even today, Hoover's mission lives on in his grandson. We call him Chuck for short. His real name is Chakota. Cheryl's been working with Hoover's grandson, honing his vocal talent for the past 14 years. He's a very good-looking guy, yes. (laughs) He's a very smart seal. Chuck glides up to the shore, he looks me right in the eyes, and like a born ambassador, he welcomes me to his land. Say whatever you feel like saying. Good. It's obvious I don't understand. So Chuck and Cheryl try again. Listen. Hi. 
Good. <laughs> but we'll ask for a how are you right now. So listen. How are you? And just in case you didn't catch that, I'm filled with a feeling you can only get when a seal with saliva and herring guts dripping out of his mouth asks you, how are you doing? Chuck is not as eloquent as his grandfather, but it's not for lack of trying. He spent 14 years learning our language. All that effort, it doesn't quite seem fair. Have you tried speaking more in seal speak to them? Actually, no. Now, who among us might have the gravelly, guttural pipes to meet Chuck halfway? Who could be our ambassador to the seal world? Starving in the belly, starving in the belly, starving in the belly of a whale. Oh, no, starving in the belly, starving in the belly, starving in the belly of a whale. That's Tom Waits. And for Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreese Kandaraja. On the next Living on Earth, it's an old profession, opening the irrigation canals to bring water for crops. San Harrow's ditch tender, it depends on what part of the country you're from, but everybody has a San Harrow. Anywhere you run water, there's somebody that actually has to control it, because the water doesn't deliver itself. A day in the life of a San Harrow, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the mouth of a dragon. Yellowstone National Park's Dragon's Mouth is a turbulent hot spring about 16 feet deep with water temperatures of 170 degrees Fahrenheit. As the hot water rises to the surface, rising gases cause a pressure explosion in the spring's cavern. It used to be called the Belcher. You can tell why from this recording, made by Jeff Rice for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandraja, and Mitra Taj. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our thanks today to Dana Chisholm and Alan Tallman. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Perrette. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. 
the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.